Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Warning, the Josh Hammer Show is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Paving a path forward for the new right. If you are a conservative, if you are a religious person, if you are a traditionalist, frankly, if you just love this country, fight back. And exposing the woke left. What is this identity politics drill? Why is the right playing into that? The only way out is through. This is the Josh Hammer Show. So unless you've been sleeping under a rock for the past 72 hours, you no doubt saw the news of an attempted coup or kind of sort of maybe an attempted coup in Moscow, in Russia. So starting Friday, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is the head of the Wagner Group, he was formerly something of a celebrity chef, I guess, (laughs) to the extent the Russians, the Soviets have celebrity chefs. He was very close to Putin. He was literally known as Putin's chef, but he founded the Wagner Group back in 2014. And The Wagner Group is basically the Russian equivalent of Blackwater. So those of you who remember the Iraq war days, you remember Blackwater. Blackwater was a private military contractor, basically mercenaries. I mean, mercenaries are, this is a tale as old as time in military circles. Those of you who have studied the American Revolution, you remember the Hessian soldiers, the German Hessians. So Wagner Group is basically the Russian equivalent of Blackwater. And they are very close or were very, very close to Putin. So much so that the dividing line in many ways between Wagner and the actual Russian military is a little difficult to tell sometimes, as many things are difficult to tell when it comes to Russia, because there is so much disinformation, misinformation and malinformation really just everywhere. It's difficult to know what to trust. But starting last year in 2022, after it became obvious, even the most cursory of observers that the Russian military was not really doing a particularly good bang up job of marching into Ukraine. It was really kind of the Wagner group that stepped into the breach and started bailing out Putin a little bit on the world stage. I think one could easily speculate that were it not for the role played by Yevgeny Prigozhin and the paramilitary group Wagner group, that Russia quite possibly would have retreated from the Donbass and Crimea last year. That's, that's pure speculation. All of this is just speculation. But all that is to say that the Russian military did not exactly come out guns blazing at the, at the beginning of this conflict. They're not really doing a particularly good job now either. Easily could have been a lot worse without Wagner. Now, going back a month to maybe even three months or so, there have been some rumors. There have been some recordings, some videos, some telegram channel message distributions that have showed discord within the ranks of Wagner Group. You have seen some videos of Prigozhin himself talking about how Putin is doing this, doing that in a much more critical way than we became accustomed to seeing, which, again, can easily be explained by the fact that the war effort is is just not going well. So starting this past Friday, 
Wagner Group basically takes over a very strategic Russian town known as Rostov, which is near the Sea of Azov, right there, kind of near the Ukrainian-Russian border or whatever exists as a semblance of a border because that border has been constantly shifting, of course, over the past 16, 17 months or so. And then Prigozhin takes Wagner Group and starts marching all the way up to Moscow. And he ends up marching hundreds of miles. And in the interim, shoots down, I think the number was seven Russian aircrafts, 13, 14, 15, or something approximating that number of confirmed Russian military members killed. And he's getting very close to Moscow. And the world is kind of watching at this point. Again, very difficult to know what was going on there. All my group chats were like, is this Twitter account reliable? Is this Twitter account reliable? Which, by the way, is a story in and of itself. And actually kind of underscores one criticism that I have had of Elon Musk and what he's done at Twitter. He's generally done a good job. One criticism, it's become really freaking hard to know who to trust with kind of this reinvention of the whole blue check, who you can basically just buy a verified check mark. Really kind of, I think we saw that play out this past weekend. Russia, which is an infamously difficult place to get reliable information from, it was just extraordinarily hard, even for those of us who pay attention to this stuff 24-7, to really just tell what the heck was going on over there. So anyway, Prigozhin, with his Wagner group, he's marching up from Rostov near the Sea of Azov. He's getting close and close to Moscow, and the world is watching. The world has, of course, been watching this whole region, the Russia-Ukrainian border and associated territories for the past year and a half or so. The world has been watching that like no other part of the world. And I think many people are starting to wonder like, oh my God, I mean, like, is this a coup? I mean, is this a push? I mean, like, is there going to be an actual armed conflict? Is this going to be a a new Russian civil war? I mean, is Wagner actually going to get into near the Kremlin? I I mean, how is this going to unfold? What what does it say about Putin? You know, during the course of this march by Prigozhin and Wagner up from Rostov up towards Moscow, Putin put out a message calling Prigozhin a traitor. Again, you have to remember here the history. Prigozhin was a very, very close ally of Vladimir Putin. And without Prigozhin and Wagner, Putin wouldn't have had any of the quasi-success, and that's putting it mildly, but quasi-success that he has had, I guess, in this stalemate of sorts in Ukraine. So Putin puts out this message calling Prigozhin a traitor, and he's getting closer and closer to Moscow, where the world is watching, and then it stops. And then it stops. And what we are told is that Alexander Lukashenko, who is the quote-unquote president, I think you might more accurately call him a, a dictator, In neighboring Belarus, he's been in power for almost 30 years, effectively since the fall of communism there in Eastern Europe. He's a very close ally of Putin. Belarus is one of only a handful of countries that routinely votes with Russia at the United Nations alongside such other, you know, bastions of of freedom and justice and, and whatnot as kind of Syria, North Korea, Iran, countries like that. It turns out that Alexander Lukashenko had allegedly brokered a truce had mediated an agreement of sorts between Putin and Prigozhin, whereby Prigozhin leaves Russia, goes to Belarus, where he is going to live as an exile. And then Wagner Group starts marching, literally, like literally turns around and starts marching back towards the Donbass, towards Ukraine. So the observer who looks at this might reasonably be expected to ask, well, what the hell? 
why would you start a coup if you're not going to finish it? What does it say about Putin? What is the role of of Alexander Lukashenko in this? Putin's closest ally there and that entire part of the world is going to take this guy who almost kind of sort of tried to coup d'etat Putin and now he's going to keep him as an exile? I mean, how does Putin not make sure Prigozhin is whacked, is killed after this as a, as a sign of consolidation of power? In the meantime, all along, Ukraine took advantage of this chaos. They took advantage of the fact that thousands, perhaps tens of thousands of Wagner paramilitary troops literally left the Donbass to march back towards Moscow. Ukraine capitalized on that by retaking large swaths of disputed territory there in the eastern part of Ukraine. And it's very hard to kind of arrive at kind of like a quick, pithy bottom line conclusion here because it just doesn't make sense. It literally just doesn't make sense. So no one comes out of this except for possibly Alexander Lukashenko. No one comes out of this looking better. Putin looks terrible. I mean, Vladimir Putin does not look good as a result of this. He had his close ally who was commanding the government-aligned paramilitary group, Russia's equivalent to Blackwater, who had basically saved Russia's ass in Ukraine to an extent over the past year as that military has shown itself to be consistently flailing and frankly, just simply less good. I, I mean, less efficacious, less productive than what many across the world had seen. So he has seen his close ally who has really kind of bailed out his ass turn into someone who was seeking almost to oppose him or depose him and shooting down Russian aircraft along the way. So Putin looks terrible. And the fact that he didn't actually take out Prigozhin, at least yet, we will see if Prigozhin gets Alexander Navalny if something mysterious happens to him in Minsk, Belarus, which seems plausible in, in my estimation. So, so he, Putin looks terrible. Prigozhin himself looks terrible, too. I, I mean, how, how do you start a coup and and not finish it. And look, if there's any bottom line to draw here, here is the bottom line. The bottom line is that the war effort is not going well for Russia. Obviously, it is not going well. As I mentioned, there have been some snippets of discontent that we have seen from Prigozhin Wagner Group for months now. There have been some videos of him expressing some sort of consternation, some discontent, discord among the ranks of Wagner Group, and that obviously exploded in a very, very big way this this past weekend. And you just don't have this sort of a fratricide of kind of quasi civil war. You don't have this happening if the war effort in Ukraine is going well. And Ukraine has started its its much anticipated counteroffensive in, in in just really over the past month or so there. So what is Putin's end game? I, I mean, how does he get out of this now? He's just lost a lot of credibility there. If you believe the public polling out of Russia, which is obviously a dubious proposition, his approval ratings as of last week remained very high. We will see, we'll have to see whether they crater according to these undoubtedly fixed and unreliable pollsters there. But what is Putin's endgame? This will be my final word on the subject. This is actually my criticism of U.S. and really European policy with respect to Russia and Ukraine is that when it became fairly obvious last year that the Russian war effort was not going well, and it was this was obvious within two to three months of Putin sending the troops in across the border, the attention of U.S. and European policymakers should have fairly quickly shifted towards not necessarily writing endless blank checks of hundreds of billions of dollars to Ukraine, underwriting with F-16s and all 
all sorts of arsenal and weaponry. No, the focus should have shifted quickly towards getting us out of this thing by giving Putin some sort of carrot to get to a negotiating table and some sort of off ramp or exit strategy whereby he could save his face and not be killed by some oligarch who was discontented by losing his yacht in Nice, France, in the Mediterranean. The fact that the West has not helped provide that off-ramp is part of the reason I think this war effort has dragged on. I think this situation only further accentuates the need for the West to try to get these parties to the table and to expedite some sort of off-ramp exit strategy so that Putin can just end this war and get us out of this. So that was the coup that almost was this past weekend from Prigozhin. It's obviously a developing kinetic story. Many developments that I'm sure will happen over the next 24 to 48 hours as well. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The Josh Hammer Show. So another story that happened this past week was, of course, the submersible. And I can just say the word submersible now and you know what I'm talking about. We're talking here about the Ocean Gate submersible, an underwater vehicle called Titan, that for days the world looked upon, seeing if there was any sign of hope that this tourist vehicle that was headed towards the bow of the Titanic, deep within the waters of the northern Atlantic Ocean, might somehow be found. And it turns out last Thursday that it was not to be found. And there are, unfortunately, fatalities involved here. There are, there are five fatalities in particular, most of whom are above the age of 50, one of whom is, is even doubly tragically a, a 19-year-old male. So what is OceanGate? Well, OceanGate is a private company that started in 2009 is based in the state of Washington in in the Pacific Northwest. And it provides these submersible vehicles for research, exploration, and indeed, private tourism. Now, there's a lot to kind of unpack about this story. And the first thing to note that it, I can't believe this has to be said, but this is a deeply tragic and terrible story. And I say that that has to be said Because if you, like me, saw some of the crap that was being spewed by appalling morons on Twitter during the course of the search for this submersible, then man, I mean, just man. And I say that because apparently the cost to get on this ill-fated and ultimately fatal underwater excursion was a quarter million dollars, $250,000. 
which we'll come back to that. That is a ridiculous, obviously, amount of money. But because it was such a high amount of money and because the people who went on to this ill-fated voyage clearly had the money, we're talking here about philanthropists, businessmen, people of that nature there, you had some non-negligible cabal of typically just far-left Marxist, socialist, whatever morons basically cheering death. Oh, like you, the wealthy, you know, kill the wealthy, crush the wealthy. They deserve this. What disgusting, evil idiocy. Again, I can't believe that has to be said. So uh, I, I could not give a rat's ass what your politics are, what your religion is, what your ethical. Mo- no, it, I, clearly mourning innocent life is something that should be universal. And I, again, I find it absolutely disgusting that this has to be said there. Now, another thing that should be said is I did not know. I mean, I was unaware, frankly, until this happened, that there were private tourism companies involved in taking people to extreme locations like this. So just to kind of give you a a, a sense of what was happening here. The Titanic shipwreck, which was not actually discovered until, I believe, the middle of the the 1980s or so, is, by definition, it's at the bottom of the ocean. The ship famously cracked in half. There were two pieces of the ship located roughly, you know, in the same vicinity as each other. Approximately 12,000 feet, so roughly two and a half miles below the ocean. So, very, very difficult to grasp that. We're talking here about effectively four Burj Khalifa's tower. I mean, I I can envision that because I was just in Dubai this past January, world's tallest building. So take that, multiply by four. That's how far down it is. To try to contemplate the amount of pressure that is happening down there, I cannot even fathom that level of pressure. I've never scuba dived, but even if you're under the water, call it 10, 15 feet, just going for like a little dive. I I mean, you feel a little pressure there. My fiance, who actually is a certified scuba diver, she has told me how one time when she was getting her scuba certification, she was going down. She took the first 30, 40, 50 feet a little quicker than she should have. And she said it was the most uncomfortable feeling in her eardrum she's ever had in her entire life. So again, we're talking there about 50 feet, 12,000 feet. I mean, the idea that a tourist private company can pay to get you down there with that kind of unfathomable pressure, which is among the most most intense on the earth, is really just utterly stupefying. And that kind of brings me to one of my broader conclusions about this very tragic saga, which is the fact that this ended up going belly up. And there was such catastrophic loss of life. Ultimately, the U.S. Coast Guard, working in conjunction with Canadian and, and French colleagues, concluded that there was a, quote, catastrophic implosion on the submersible. We don't know exactly at what depth that this happened. But my main conclusion is maybe humans should not actually try to play the role of God in let alone monetizing expeditions of this nature. And if you want to send a robot to the bottom of the ocean floor, fine. 
If you work in like a government lab and you are specializing in this and, and, and you've spent decades with the most sophisticated equipment, I mean, it's been tested, it's been regulated, it's been this and that by the most expert people in the world and it's been tested, blah, 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 maybe. But a private expedition to the bottom of the ocean, similar in many ways to the idea of private expeditions to the moon or perhaps in the future, even to Mars, which are things that are currently being floated here. You know, maybe there are some parts of the world, some parts of the universe that human beings, due to obvious physical limitations and technological limitations, maybe there are some things that we actually genuinely are not meant to see. And that's okay. So that was kind of my biggest takeaway as I watched this horrible situation unfold. It's hard not to think about the role of God in a situation like this. I mean, again, maybe there are some things that he himself alone can or should see, let alone monetizing this to the cost of a quarter million of dollars or so. Another thing that I heard last week that kind of gave me some real kind of deep concern about this, again, a quarter of a million dollars to try to get down there and think about what's down there. What were they actually trying to pay to see? Well, a shipwreck, probably the most famous shipwreck ever, but a shipwreck. What happened on a shipwreck? Well, roughly 1,600 people died. So very difficult to think about that as well, is charging and accepting and paying $250,000 and risking your own life simply to see a famous place where 1,600 of your fellow humans died. You know, as a friend of mine said last week, in many ways that kind of underscores the greater decadence of our generation, the greater decadence of human life in many ways in the 2020s into the 21st century. The fact that people would be willing to pay this amount of money, these gobs and gobs of money, to go down to the most extreme places and ultimately just to see a famous place where a lot of people died. Very hard to kind of just think positively about this. Very difficult. And again, that I think that we can accurately say that without, you know, God forbid, doing anything other than mourning this tragic loss of life. Final thing that I'll mention on this is the founder of this company, Stockton Rush is his name. He was the chief executive and co-founder of OceanGate. He died. He died on this. He was in the Titan submersible last week. Some video emerged of a handful of years ago of Stockton Rush talking about how, and I'm paraphrasing here, how he didn't want just white males working at the company, didn't want white males working on inspection or this or that because it didn't conduce to a diverse workplace or various other platitudes like that. Again, OceanGate is based in Washington State in the Pacific Northwest. It's fairly easy to see how there might be kind of a woke culture at this company. And it is beyond tragedy, of course, that Stockton Rush met his maker there on a vehicle of his own company's making. But it ultimately is also worth underscoring that at the end of the day, when it comes to science, when it comes to industry, when it comes to business, when it comes to any other venture, but certainly, certainly when it comes to a private company trying to construct vessels like this, 
to go to places where human beings, as we just discussed, frankly should not go. At the end of the day, you can have diversity or equity, whatever you want to call it, or you can have meritocracy. At some point, at some marginal point, this trade-off between quality of product, quality of innovation, quality of life in general, and some absurd notion of equity becomes something of a zero-sum game. And it is tragic that Stockton Rush ultimately paid for that with his life. But surely, surely, if that is not a takeaway for us from this very sad episode, then we are doing it wrong. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Josh Hammer Show. So I was in Philadelphia this past weekend. I spent the weekend in Philadelphia for the first time in nine years or so. And, you know, I didn't stay in one of the bad parts of Philadelphia, of which there are obviously many. I mean, anyone who pays any attention to this, you've probably seen the same videos that I have seen. Kensington Avenue, places like that. I mean, there were some places where the rule of law is just literally not enforced. And of course, this gets into the broader problem of Soros-funded prosecutors. The district attorney for Philadelphia is a man by the name of Larry Krasner. He called himself. He is a self-styled, quote-unquote, progressive prosecutor. He is a Soros-funded guy all the way. And Larry Krasner is actually so patently insane that he has fairly openly and explicitly talked about the fact that he chooses not to prosecute crimes for the sheer reason of not to kind of play into equity and not to kind of over-prosecute people because they happen to be black, because he doesn't want to be personally complicit and getting more black bodies in jail because, as the case often is, in a city like Philadelphia, the vast majority of violent criminals, depending on the crime, happen to be non-white and oftentimes black. I mean, Larry Krasner is really kind of part and parcel of the problem of the Soros-funded progressive prosecutor, reform prosecutor. He is every bit as bad as Alvin Bragg in New York City, George Gascon out in Los Angeles, Kim Fox in Chicago, some major places like that. So again, I was not staying in really the the heart of Philadelphia as hellhole. On the contrary, I actually was staying just a couple blocks from City Hall. You you know, you guys have all seen Rocky, the famous scene with Rocky Balboa claiming the steps of City Hall in Philadelphia. I I was staying at the Lowe's Hotel, which is a well-known hotel right there in city center Philadelphia, right off Market Street, one of the major kind of east-west thoroughfares along with Chestnut Street in Philadelphia. And the point is, the point is that even there, Even there, (laughs) it is not exactly all roses and mellifluous music or anything like that. 
and my experience in Philly actually started even before that. I remember when we got in the Uber from the airport, my fiance and I, so the Uber driver was actually from Armenia, funny enough. If you remember, uh, I actually was just in Armenia. I spoke about it a couple podcasts ago. I was literally just there for a whole week on a fact-finding mission of sorts. And, you know, like many immigrants to the U.S., and this guy has lived in Philadelphia for 30 years, very interesting Uber driver. You know, he has... He, he, he has a love for this country or he has a love for America, at least as the way it used to be. This is one of the greatest ironies, by the way, of the left's totally misbegotten attempts to appeal in ham-fisted fashion to many minority immigrant groups. You know, people choose to move to America for a reason. I mean, do you think that people move to America, whether from from Guatemala, Mogadishu, Somalia, or wherever. Do you think they moved here because they thought America is just this horrible, systemically racist? No. No, you moron. They moved here because they think America is what America at least used to be, which is a very, very, very wonderful experiment in order to liberty and a genuinely prosperous, free place, yada, yada, yada. That is why most people choose to move to America. My Uber driver was very much of that dent. And, you know, my fiance and I asked him about Philly when he was driving us to our hotel there. And he was telling us about Larry Krasner, about the fact that there are some places of of Philadelphia that are effective no-go zones, which is a term that you typically hear in Europe as it pertains to portions of cities like Paris and and Brussels, Belgium, that have become so Islamicized where the rule of law is effectively non-force. The police choose not to go. I mean, mean, cities like Philadelphia have actual no-go zones. And that first night when I was first there kind of walking around, the first thing that you notice is that, holy shit, I mean, it stinks of weed. (laughs) Like, like you can't walk more than a few feet without the smell of marijuana just totally, totally whacking you in the face like a two by four. And I actually have no idea what the legality of, of marijuana is in Philadelphia. I mean, whether it's legal or illegal, you know, it doesn't particularly matter for my purposes here. For my purposes here, I'm just here to tell you that it was very unpleasant. Furthermore, as in so many other major cities, one of the first things you notice is obviously that the homeless situation is very bad. There are homeless people everywhere. I absolutely saw some needles kind of strewn about the sidewalk in some of these side streets off of Market Street, which is the major thoroughfare that that we were staying on there. And it just genuinely feels unsafe. We walked to dinner that night, met some friends for dinner. Simply did not feel safe. I mean, it was a kind of situation where, you know, my fiance takes her engagement ring, kind of turns it around to hide the diamond. I kind of had these pangs of guilt for taking her there. We were in town for my friend's wedding. Just just not pleasant. Lots of storefronts boarded up. And again, we're talking about, about the heart of downtown Philadelphia. This is not kind of... a a zombie apocalypse part of the city, at at least in theory. And, you know, after dinner, we we Ubered back. We were not going to walk back to our hotel that evening after it was dark. In fact, our Uber driver, the Armenian guy, actually even told us that himself. So Philadelphia is is not in good shape. I mean, you probably did not need to hear that from me, but again, having been there, let me just reiterate that this is a this is a once proud city that is is really not in particularly great shape and you know that's not the cast aspersions on the city of philadelphia we actually did some of the touristy stuff while we were there we went to independence hall and the liberty bell actually it was kind of cool we actually ended up kind of stumbling across independence hall on the one year anniversary of the dobbs abortion decision so it was the one year anniversary of the supreme court overturning roe versus wade and we actually 
went there. Um, we, we didn't go because of this, but because it happened to be the one year anniversary, there were actually these dueling protests. So you had a very, very large pro-life contingent and then a slightly smaller pro-abortion counter protests. And I think, <laughs> I think my takeaway on these two groups can be summarized as follows. The pro-life group took to politely applauding and they actually had a group prayer, a a group vigil led by like a lay pastor or something like that. And around the same time that the pro-life group started doing this prayer from the lay pastor, the purple haired, you know, Birkenstock tie dye shirt wearing freaks on the other side of this quite literal barrier around the same time as the prayer, they responded by chanting F the fascists, but they didn't say F. They actually used the word. I, I mean, talk about like, a microcosm of that whole debate. One side is like praying is comporting themselves well. The other side looks like a bunch of people from the Coney Island Fair freak show and is shouting epithets at the top of their lungs. I mean, just disgusting behavior. But anyway, Philadelphia overall, not in particularly great shape. But this problem, of course, is not limited to Philadelphia. So just this week, I actually saw a headline that the CEO of Monumental Sports Entertainment, which is the holding company that owns the NBA and NHL franchises in Washington, D.C., that would be the Washington Wizards and the Washington Capitals. And they play at the Capital One Arena in downtown Washington, D.C. It's actually in Chinatown. I know that because I used to live just a few blocks from there. In fact, one of my buddies from college actually worked for Monumental Sports Entertainment when we all lived in Washington, D.C. after college. I used to go to a lot of games there. But apparently the CEO of Monumental Sports Entertainment, which again owns the Wizards and the Capitals, is in talks with the Commonwealth of Virginia and local local officials in the city of Arlington to move his teams outside of D.C. to Crystal City, Virginia, basically right across the Potomac River. Now, Really crazy stuff. So the Capital One Arena, when it was actually, when it started in the late 90s, around 97, 98, 99, around then, did a tremendous job of gentrifying Chinatown, D.C. How do I know that? Because I used to live there. I literally lived in Chinatown, D.C. for two years between college and law school. Spent a lot of time there. The fact that the Wizards and Capitals might cut bait and move out now, again, yet another example of blue Democratic Party-led municipal centers that have just let this crime and general just kind of disgusting nature of life just totally metastasize, so much so that these two teams that play in this very nice and fairly sleek modern arena are in talks to move across the river to Virginia. Finally, California, man. California is in a world of itself. So a good buddy of mine was just in San Francisco a couple weeks ago. He sent this email. I was BCC'd to a bunch of us. Listen to what my friends, who I will leave nameless here, had to say about San Francisco. So it's a rather articulate friend of mine. He wrote, quote, The downtown area is gutted. Market Street is a disaster. Along almost its entire length from the Civic Center to Embarcadero and in the surrounding neighborhoods, commercial storefronts are almost all empty except for liquor stores. After nightfall, the sidewalks were crowded by groups of homeless people, most of whom looked like they were on drugs and or severely mentally ill. The only people walking with purpose looked to be selling drugs or selling women. The ground was covered with all manner of filth. Being around it made me feel less safe than I have ever felt in any American city and in virtually all the third world environments I was in for 14 years, including the three days in 2008 when my pro-government neighborhood in Lebanon was surrounded by heavily armed Hezbollah militants. 
unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, my my buddy is literally saying that his time in San Francisco made him feel less safe than when he lived in Beirut, Lebanon, surrounded by Hezbollah on all sides. You know, we've explained on this show before how I was in Chicago last year. My fiance's nice purse was stolen by a panhandler in a bar. A nice party. Look, the point is, no matter where you look, and oftentimes not even these big iconic cities like Chicago, San Francisco, Philadelphia, D.C., oftentimes smaller towns, tragically, even more so tragically in that case. The rule of law is just non-enforced. Crime is running rampant in this country. And I just don't understand why the voters don't all rise up in arms. I mean, if there is any issue besides basic economic issues, I guess, inflation and whatnot. If there's any issue that more redounds to your day-to-day liveliness, health, safety, just existence as a human being, surely it is the crime issue. Surely it is homelessness. All these other issues that combined have just put urban America as this one bespeckled piece of filth on the American map right now. So really just awful. And, you know, look, had a good time at the wedding and all of that. But man, my visit to Philadelphia really did kind of underscore much of what I had been reading and experiencing and hearing from friends for the past few years. Thank God I don't have this where I currently live right now, at least yet. And as one final thought on this, my God, if you are living in one of these cities, why are you still living there? I mean, if you can't vote the bums out, then you should probably just get the hell out yourself. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Josh Hammer Show. So, as I mentioned, I was in Philadelphia this past weekend for a friend's wedding. This is a friend of mine from college. So, this was the first time that I had seen a handful, really a bunch actually, of friends from college in years. And, you know, two of my closest friends from college were were not at this wedding, but certainly some others whom I was very close with in college were. And the whole weekend kind of got me thinking a lot about friendship, about what friendships are, what they are not, about maintaining friendships, forging new ones, letting old friendships go, just kind of the whole dynamic of friendship, which of course is actually one of the most important topics really facing the country right now. If you look at the, if you look at the percentages of young men in particular, who say that they do not have even a single close friend who they could just pick up the phone and call or anything like that. It's depressingly high, shockingly high. And in fact, this 
crisis of loneliness, despondency is really ultimately to blame for so many of our broader kind of social maladies at the moment. But to take us back to Philadelphia, so, you know, I was in a fraternity in college like many others were, and this was the wedding of a pledge class brother of mine. Really, really, really good guy. He's just a nice guy, comes from a super bright family. I mean, he's an MD, PhD, double doctor, you know, crazy smart guy, right? I mean, um, you know, siblings all went to Ivy League schools. And I'm really happy for him. I, I am genuinely happy that he has found his person, and it was really nice to be there to celebrate him. And at least one other friend who I had there, I also enjoy catching up with. But, you know, a lot of these other guys who I was really close with when we graduated college, now 12 years ago, I graduated college class of 2011. You know, it's hard. I mean, like time really does change. And we are different people than we were back then in so many ways. What I'm talking about here, I mean, this was a, my friend was Jewish and, and most of my friends, not all, most of my friends who I knew at this wedding were Jewish, but it was a very reformed Jewish wedding. Very, very different um, kind of open violation of the laws of Shabbat, of the Jewish Sabbath. There was shellfish served, things like that. And, you know, maybe that would have been okay for me back when I was in college, back when that was kind of my lifestyle as well. But that's not how I operate these days. That system of kind of values and operation when it comes to Judaism in that particular case is now so foreign to me. And I, I couldn't help but feel that some of my friends with whom I pledged with these guys, we just not the same. And I, I kept on thinking about this on the plane ride back to Florida from Philadelphia. And, you know, it makes you think, you know, how did we end up in this situation? Did I drop the ball? Did I not pick up the phone and call someone enough? Did he drop the ball? Maybe a little bit of all of the above. I'll be the first to admit, anyone who knows me well in real life, IRL, as the, as the kids say, anyone, anyone who knows me knows that I am not necessarily the first person to pick up the phone. I tend to be more of a text email kind of guy, for better or for worse, probably for worse, to be honest with you. So part of that's on me. Part of that is on any friend in question. It obviously takes two to tango in that respect there. But part of it, and this is kind of what my fiance was kind of you know reassuring me of, and I think she's totally right, Part of this is just life. It's just a natural order of things. And look, I mean, I have my friends from childhood through high school with whom I'm still in touch really with, I'd say three. And actually close touch, but no more than three. Then I have my college friends. I have some other friends from my one university where I spent living and studying in London, England. And then I have my friends from my time between college and law school, my friends from law school, my friends from when I lived in this city, that city. I've lived in like eight or nine different cities now. So I, I have a lot of different groups of friends. And I think the uncomfortable truth is that sometimes the way we just grow differently is the natural attrition process. You kind of just have to naturally let yourself choose who to kind of cling on to, who to gravitate to, who you really had, not just kind of a time, place, and manner kind of transactional friendship with, really had like a meaningful friendship. And then the choice is yours to kind of keep to those friendships and to work diligently to maintain those friendships. Something that, again, I will be the first to fault myself for not always having done a great job of. So I think when it comes to friendships, what I've 
what I've slowly kind of arrived at the, at the conclusion of is that sometimes less is actually more. Again, I have a lot of friends from like lots of circles of life. God willing, I'm getting married later this year. You know, we're inviting a good number of people to the wedding, many of whom are friends from all of the walks of life that I just mentioned and then some others. But spreading yourself thin and trying to maintain a friendship that ultimately is for neither party necessarily worth preserving can ultimately crowd out, I think, the time and effort that one might need to place to actually work on forging and developing and retaining the friendships that really do matter. Not just for the here and now, but most importantly, for the long term. And when I say less is more, I think that maintaining kind of a a, a shorter, smaller stable of really meaningful friendships, friends that give you fulfillment on not just kind of a, hey, let's grab a beer kind of level, but kind of a let's shoot the shit and and then some level. Let's have like the real conversations. Like, you know, I, I, I'll call you if I really need you to get me out of a jam, if I really need your thoughts on, on this or that and a family situation, a dating situation, whatever. Maybe sometimes having kind of a smaller, tighter circle of friends is actually much more powerful than being someone who can count a million friends, but really none of whom, or at least few of whom, are particularly close, are particularly there from you. So it was kind of just like a life hits you in the face kind of surreal kind of experience for me. Again, being, you know, the groom, great guy, really awesome guy, super, super happy for him. But again, you know, some of the other folks there just we just we, we've kind of just grown apart it's really just that simple and i knew that i mean it's not this is nothing that i didn't already know your values change obviously you live in different cities oftentimes that's normal and i think that that is my takeaway is that that is just normal and not only is that normal but in many ways that's actually for the best for all the reasons that we just explained about having kind of a closer, tighter group of friends, of confidants, an inner circle, people that you trust. But it was very interesting for me to kind of just experience that in real time. Very, very bittersweet, I think, in the moment. I have no regrets about attending the wedding. Again, I'm very happy for my friend who got married there, but just a bit of a tough pill to swallow. But ultimately, when it comes to younger Americans, millennials, Gen Z, and really when it comes to kind of I guess both young men and young women, you know, really make sure that you have at least, at least one or two close friends. You really, really, really do need that. You might not think that you need that, but trust me, you do. You never know when you might need that close friend, but you're going to need that close friend. And if it means that you kind of have to let an old, less meaningful friendship die to kind of solidify the bonds because... Yes, time is obviously a zero-sum game, limited resources, scarcity, all that. That's okay. That is actually a-okay. 
being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. Which is like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.